afternoon, good evening, good night. How are you today? This is Teachers Talk Radio. I'm Harry Waters, and you may have heard there was absolutely no intro music there. You won't be surprised. It was uh, purely due to the fact that, for some reason, my intro music isn't loading, which also means my news isn't loading, and even my outro music isn't loading. So I'm afraid there's going to be no music. Uh, the news will be a bit delayed today as well. I will continue to endeavour to, to get it uploaded. I know everybody will be excited and listening um, to see what's happening in the news at the moment, um, who's doing what, who's going where. Um, and yeah, that will uh, inevitably happen soon enough. But in the meantime, what have I been up to in the last... Well, it's been two weeks because last week I was not around. Um, I was I was away, in fact. I, I went on a, a summer camp. I was on a summer camp. It was amazing. It was with uh, a previous guest, actually, uh, Vanessa. She was she was here in the past many, oof, many moons ago. Um, we talked. It was I think it was September the first last year, and we talked all about mindfulness. Well, I went away for a summer camp with some some teenage students. We did a mindfulness retreat, but we also did some um, rafting. We did some rock climbing. We did all sorts of different bits and pieces. So it was it was pretty exciting. It was pretty fun. Um, and I'm guessing the person who's just entered the room, um, Amel, that's uh, that's the guest today. She is connected. She is here. She's she's in the house, uh, as it were. I've just realised I'm sweating quite badly. We're on a Zoom link, and she's got a, a horrible sweaty mess that she has to look at at the moment. Um, <laughs> But it is wonderful to have her. Okay then, so that that was something that was a uh, yeah. Again, my microphone has failed me. I'm not sure if maybe it's because at the same time uh, I'm connected through Zoom, but I'll, I'll have to figure out a way to not do that. So you've missed my first two and a half minutes, which uh, which weren't very interesting, I must admit. But let's just reset and say hello, everybody. Uh, as I, I mentioned to. Uh, an empty crowd, as you know, the microphone wasn't working. It's been a fun couple of weeks since I last spoke to you. Um, I've been up to quite a lot. I, I went away for a summer camp. It was a, a delightful summer camp. It was a mindfulness retreat out in um, in Suriago, which is in the, the mountains just near Rome. And I connected with Vanessa Hartson Walker of uh, Kids Can. Uh, somebody who I had on as a mindfulness guest a little while ago, in fact, back on September the first. Uh, it was it was a delight to um, to speak to her to have her on. Uh, what seems like an awfully long time ago. Um, it was in fact one of the I think it was my second most downloaded episode of the. This is today the forty eighth episode of uh, of Harry Waters on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, and I do have a, a fantastic guest here today, somebody I met 
in in Belfast. I've I've online known for for quite a long time. Um, I've online I, I've followed her. It sounds creepy when you say that. I don't want it to sound creepy. I want it to just be normal. Um, but I have followed her online for quite a long time and been very interested. I went to I, I saw her during in a webinar once. Um, a little while back, I can't remember who it was with. Uh, I'm racking my brains right now, but the, the the number of webinars I I either go to or attempt to go to, uh, I'm sure we all have the same issue. Um, but it was a wonderful webinar, all about um, how we can adapt our materials and how we should perhaps adapt our materials to be more reflective. Now, um, I'm trying to get. I keep saying um. You can tell I'm nervous today with the technological issues. I'm trying to get the news and tech report to work. It isn't working. So until then, I am just going to have a quick word with you and share share a few words from those who make these things possible. So with the Slack group, are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people like you to help them achieve even more. Now with the Slack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need offered a clear path to career progression and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits in the in the industry has to offer. Witherslack currently has some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for. Check out www.witherslack.swag. Oh, I'm doing a good one today. Witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. I reckon probably take a sip of water before you continue, Harry. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service provides secondary school with an evidence-based curriculum at key, uh, key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, and it connects with its resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD powered by um, Oxford Smart Caboodle. What makes Oxford Smart different? Uh, for the first time, curriculum is seamlessly connected with the resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. Uh, this curriculum coherence means all components work smoothly together, gathering data to give you the insight you need to plan, teach, assess, and monitor the progress of your students effectively, as well as providing a personalized and adaptive learning pathway for all your students. Oxford Smart, smeeze up your, smeeze up, freeze up uh, your time to inspire a love of learning in your students and spark awe and wonder in your classroom. Visit OUP at global.oup.com to find out more. Now that was quite a comical uh, showing of how not to, to read something. Um, I would not be good at an autocue, I must say. Uh, being away for uh, a week or so has certainly affected my, uh, my reading skills. Um, and then I've just looked down uh, this afternoon, I've also been dis dismantling a barbecue. Um, I'll talk more about that very shortly. Yeah, going very well indeed. You can see, don't give up my day job. Yeah, reading. Writing's definitely more my thing, everybody. Reading is probably not what I do best, which is why most things go unscripted. Anyway, I've gone on long enough about destroying barbecues that I no longer need and wondering how on earth I'm going to read a script in future. I reckon the next time it'll be better. I am going to introduce um, my guest for today. Wow, Harry, well done. You finally got round to it. Um, it is Amina Duidi, and we are going to talk about all sorts of different things. Uh, she's currently in Southampton, where she uh, got her PhD. 
she does many different things, um, but she is uh, mainly a materials reviewer, uh, I believe. But I'm sure there are there are many other strings to that wonderful bow that she is going to share with us very soon. So. I'm going to ask you again, if you could unmute yourself, Amina, because I'm worried if I unmute you, nobody will be able to hear you and the technology ghost will, will attack me. So how are you? Can you hear me? Can we hear you? We can hear you and you did a fantastic work presenting the adverts. Well done. Excellent. You're quite quiet from where I'm sitting. I don't know if that's just me. Um, it's probably just me because you know what? I probably haven't got my, my volume turned up loud enough. Um, but you are apparently quite quiet, so I don't know if there's a way of moving a mic closer to your mouth or, or turning the mic up. Like this. How's that? Can, can, can anybody, can everybody hear? Let's see if they can hear me or not. It sounds like you're very softly spoken, that's for sure, but um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how quiet. And Maybe if we move the phone closer to our mouths, because I'm now currently on my phone as well. Can everybody hear me? Well, I, 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 apparently it sounds like you're very far away. She's in Southampton, Peter. She's not that far away. She's oh. just down the road. There we go. Is it better now? I think it's slightly better for me. Now, I'm going to be quiet when you speak, so that will certainly make it easier for other people to hear you. Something I'm not great at, being quiet. There, there we go. Maybe Harry can speak more quietly, according to Michelle. Um, certainly not the first time anybody's ever uh, said that in my life. Um, I'll see if there's a way of me changing the volume here. But anyway, Amina, that was a very interesting start to the show. He says covered in soot. Um, who are you? How have you got here? And tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are. Before I answer that, what do you mean by here? And then I can position myself to what's your here okay here where you have reached in your life in your in your um, professional life as opposed to your your personal life okay I'm, I'm happy to go personal as I said <laughs> earlier I really don't mind so who am I professionally I am an English language teacher and researcher uh, by training I um, specialize in intercultural communication it's a big, big concept that um, covers a lot of small, small ideas and bigger ideas that we may touch upon today. Um, I work as a freelancer, consultant, reviewer for publishers. I have been only taking projects where I review course books, children's books, any educational material really, really that comes to my email um, <laughs> from a diversity perspective. So that's where I am at. I mainly work on how can we as materials designers and writers improve our content and be more equitable, represent more the people who have been historically marginalized and provide quality content for our learners who are, you know, growing up in a complex world. So that's where I am at professionally. Over the summer, I work as an EAP teacher in UK higher education. Uh, EAP stands for English for Academic Purposes, and it's usually, you know, five to 12 weeks programs where we um, 
help students, international students mainly, mm -hmm. transition to British higher education systems. And we try to equip them with the academic skills that they might need for their degree. So I do both reviewing materials. I had some experience writing materials for um, one of the big four publishers. I found it very creatively draining. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can agree with you there. And it was very, very hard for me to turn off my inclusivity lens. And uh, all what I was producing was mainly extremely exclusive. And I'm saying extremely exclusive because I knew as part of a team of a lot of materials writers that I would be the only one writing about a Muslim character mm -hmm. or a black character or um, both an intersectional character. So that was um, very heavy work that I, um, I have, have, have gone through. And now I just prefer to review, suggest recommendations for materials writers and authors and curriculum designers, and then be consulted whenever my help is needed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, does it answer your I, question? Yeah, it absolutely does. I see what you mean about the, the writing as well, because obviously, you know, with, with the work that I do, I'm asked to do stuff that is sustainability-based, like a, a lot of the stuff that I do, but then also just, you know, generic, we need an activity book to be done. And I, I start it and I get in there and I find it hard to take myself away from the, the sustainability for a start, obviously I can, but then it is the, the inclusivity side of things as well, something I'm trying to work on in myself, um, something I'm trying to you know build with my own CPD and stuff like that. Uh, and to then not be able to do a lot of those things, it, it is very draining, you know, when you have to just be like, okay, well, this is just a grammar thing, but you can't look beyond it being just a grammar thing when it is all just, you know, for example, one of the activity books I worked on, they, they said, and I'm sorry, this is for the Muslim market, so you can't have a boy talking to a girl. Okay. And like, just on, on that level, like the, the very, the, the, the most base level of all, you know, you know, humans interacting in general. Um, you know, so I really felt hamstrung by, by that kind of thing. And it, it makes it very difficult to, to be confident. Um, here we go, Michelle saying we try our best, there's always more to learn. Um, and Peter has said he's blessed to be working with you, um, which I'm sure is absolutely true. It is. I mean, you mentioned... wonderful to be working with him, yeah. He, oh, he's, he... he's also a diversity consultant with publishers, and, and he's a real, real support, especially when I have doubts about how to address topics about communities that I'm not necessarily part of. And that would be, for example, the LGBTQ plus community and all of us who work within this field of diversity, equity and inclusion are aware our, of our own limitations. And if I feel confident talking about Muslim representation, about power relationships between colonial, um, colonial uh, in terms of colonial history, because that's my background, both academic and personal, I feel less confident um, addressing topics about including people from the LGBT community in an authentic and a genuine manner. 
Exactly. And, uh, you have this wonderful network of diversity experts who are more than welcome to give you their time and 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 the relationships become more personal than professional through science. So um, I'm also grateful to be working with with Peter. It's it's so great to be able to also see the materials that, for example, Peter is creating. Um, and to look at them you know, as a materials writer, as a teacher as well, um, to be able to look at those and see how it can be done, like quite easily. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying what Peter does is easy. Uh, it absolutely isn't. Um, but, you know, it can be done and it can be done in an effective, it can be done in a, in a sympathetic way, not, um, you know, in a professional way as well and what i love about um what peter does uh, is when he goes out and asks for again it to be checked you know he openly seeks people to check it because he isn't able to say i can speak for this this is you know i want to learn from other people i want to hear from other people to see if it is rightly done so it has been done properly so for me that's it's a super important thing. I guess you need to be very humble in this respect. And you have to be humble. If we follow Peter's lead on that, and you as a teacher or materials writer, you don't have the network that Peter has, and you don't have the platform that I have, then what, what would be the alternative? How can you check if it is appropriate to um, use this term to describe a Muslim person or how do you call the veil or is it the hijab, is it the burqa and what's the actual term that you should be using and you're not sure about it and you have nobody in your network that can confirm or and, and you don't want to give them the emotional burden to educate you. There are all these organizations and all these activists out there that share free content for us to enjoy and they make it so accessible to somebody who has no idea about the Sikh community, for example, or somebody who has no idea about how cultural practices uh, take place during, I don't know, for example, um, religious celebrations and what are the words and the terms for this and that. So there are charities, there are organizations, there are activists on LinkedIn that can help out. And, and I'm sure if you reach out to people and say, hey, can you just have a look and do you think I did a fair representation of, of somebody? Nobody is going to say this is free labor. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, with a lot of people's materials, I do like to just, you know, out of interest, whether I'm going to use them or not, I like to have a look at them. I guess this is, you know, on my own selfish side of things. Somebody shows me free materials. I look at them. I like to get ideas from them as well. I like to look at how they've been worked. I like to look at the design of them. But you know, it it doesn't take longer than than fifteen minutes to have a quick look over something. You know, if you're going to do something properly, of course, you know, if you're being paid to analyze uh, a textbook, for example, then yes, you're going to spend more than fifteen minutes looking over it. But if it's a lesson plan, you know, you can kind of look over it and see, you know, maybe that could be done in a different way, or or even this is lovely. You know, I. I personally, when I'm looking at Peter's materials, it's not with a critical eye, I have to say. It's um, it's more with a, a greedy kind of, I love this, uh, these materials, I want to learn from it. Um, and 
I could certainly use these materials uh, in my classes when I get the opportunity. So yeah, I, I'm. It has both sides of the coin, I guess. You know. Uh, it does. Um, if 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 you if you don't mind me going back to the example of the boy and the girl in the course presentation for mm -hmm. predominantly Muslim market, wasn't it? So, what I like to talk what I like to differentiate between is diversity, representation, and inclusivity versus parsnips. Mm -hmm. which I look at and we talked about it with uh, with Peter um, because we're working on a project where these two dimensions um, are very important so parsnip for those who are listening to us and are not familiar with the, with the concept uh, it's an acronym and it stands for let me google it first <laughs> I don't want to be I know there is politics but I'm not sure if that's the first one parsnip you watch Michelle, she's going to type it straight in the chat, I guarantee, I guarantee. Um, I remember I went to a talk by Michelle about 10 years ago, all about parsnips. Um, she was, you know, that was back in the days before online webinars and so on and so forth. So it was, uh, it, she was uh, straighter with my, that was the first time I'd ever come across parsnips. Um, although in Spain, actual parsnips are quite hard to come by as well, so... Um, when she mentioned parsnips, I straight away thought, oh, roast dinner. Um, obviously, it wasn't all about a roast dinner. Not at all. Not at all about roast dinner. So I'm, uh, let, me, let me give it a try. Um, for some reason, my, my computer is not now. So the P would stand, stand for example, for politics. Uh, the A would be about, um, I'm not sure. I'll check it later. Alcohol. Alcohol, yes, alcohol. Um, the R would be about religion. The S would be about sexuality or sex. The N uh, would be about, let me think. Um, I know Narcotics. Say again? Narcotics. Narcotics. Yes, all it is, you know, uh, drugs and smoking and... Maybe alcohol is included in that as well, mainly drugs consumption. Um, and the I is for isms, all what is, you know, fascism, terrorism, I think. And the P, the last P would be for pork and anything related to pork, which would be, you know, bacon or any other references. So the, if we're talking about the relationship between the boy and the girl, that would fall under the cultural belief that um, heterogeneity in classrooms or, or proximity between two different genders would not be socially acceptable mm -hmm. that would under the would would fall under the s for for sexuality and sex but if there is if this is this is how businesses and materials writers don't have time to challenge systemic or you know organizations like these and they don't have to time to challenge those taboos what i would in suggest is to think about all those materials were for the sake of equality and we want to check the the box of oh i have represented a man and a woman so it's 50 50 therefore i'm being an equal writer or i'm you know checking the box of equality you could also think about it of about being heteronormative where um to a man talks to a woman 
or a woman is ha having a conversation with a man. And usually there is an underlying meaning where there is some kind of relationship between them. And most of the time, this relationship is heteronormative. So then, as a materials writer, you would also feel inclined to challenge it as much as you would feel inclined to challenge it if it was for a Muslim market. Um, so if we think about it from this perspective, I think we would feel, as writers, um, less um, bothered by the restrictions that the parsnip has, yeah. especially in the Muslim Muslim um, ELC market. One other thing. Now, we mentioned pork. What about beef? What about the Hindu market? You know, I don't see beef in parsnips, but, you know, it's another thing that perhaps should be considered. What about animal cruelty? And just, you know... In general, in yeah. In general, avoiding anything related or showcasing animal cruelty. And that's something we could, our students are aware of. That's something as materials writers, we'll end up following the lead of our students. They are the ones who in the classroom would ask you to avoid talking about such or such topic, or if they are empowered enough and feeling safe enough in your, in your space, which again brings us to social justice in ELT, then they would be the one leading you to design materials for your own classroom where you would avoid animal cruelty and you would be you know, culturally sensitive, environmentally sensitive, etc., etc. The change is coming and it's already here already. And materials writers, of course, are looking for ideas here and there, but sometimes they are, you know, just they can come from their own students, mm -hmm. especially for those who are. In still working in proximity with students. I know many have, have transitioned to uh, the editorial world um, and cut links with, with uh, school, uh, school environment, classroom environment. That is, you know. There are some of us that keep our feet in both. I mean, my, one of my feet is much more gently in, in, the, in the classroom, but it, it's still in there. You know, they, I still have three lessons which are which I do on a weekly basis, some of them twice a week as well. So th three classes, sorry. Um, so, you know, I, I keep my foot in there. But again, it's, it's, it's not exactly a fair spread of, of reality or fair spread of classes and such, because you know, I have a kid's class, a teen's class and, a, and an adult class. So I try to keep it as mixed as possible. Um, but they've been similar students for the last few years. Uh, so it's not exactly a 100% controlled test of, of what the classroom environment is, but it does give me a chance to try out what I'm doing. Um, there was something else that I, I, was, I, I was thinking about there just a moment ago when we were um, talking about... Um, this idea of, of, of beef and so on and so forth and these other areas that you know must be avoided or could be avoided. Uh, Michelle actually mentioned that uh, she got a list of about 20 different parsnips, as it were. Now, I, I can't imagine being told I couldn't write about 20 different things in my, in my lesson plans or in my materials or whatever I was doing or if I was checking it. It's, uh, 
almost impossible it's almost impossible to bear in mind that kind of idea of it um something else i noticed when you started introducing yourself i wanted to to bring up and you can see that you are an inclusively minded person not just in your in your work when you mentioned that you worked in uh esp uh you did, or eap i can't remember which one it was i think it was esp or eap uh, but you then defined the the three letter abbreviation um, or the TLA, as I like to call it. What you often find with teachers, materials writers, people in education, they'll come at you with all these different abbreviations and they'll just say it as if you know, like, yeah, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. And you're just like, you don't, not everybody uh, knows all of these. So I could really see from just from that, you know, that you have been trained, trained yourself in in a way that it isn't simply within your work it's also within your life and i think that's something that's super important and, and this idea of you know reflecting reality not everybody is going to know what these different things mean so you you know you open up these different ideas now i was really lucky this week um i've mentioned a few times i went to this summer camp um but on this summer camp there was a you know a fair range of of teenagers uh, and there was um, a boy called Kyle um, and he's currently transitioning and of all of the people at the the camp he was just the most gentle lovely uh, heartwarming person I've ever met in my life um, he was absolutely like he had this wonderful magnetism and um, but also kind of he was incredibly humble with his with with how how good he was at, at English. Um, you know, he was absolutely incredible. He was very humble with it, and you know, we just have nice chats about music and stuff like that. Um, and it made it made me look towards a lot of sort of stuff that that Peter does and 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 that that area of things. And it made me think and try and reassess myself in that area. But another area that I get really kind of stuck in uh living in spain living in an area that is incredibly incredibly white um i find myself when i'm creating materials i find it difficult to include other areas obviously when there are case studies from different places it's a lot easier um now i know that you've done a lot of work on that in fact i went to your talk that was about that um and I'd like now, if possible, if we can talk about Simon. Do you remember we talked about Simon? Yes, we talked about Simon and white saviorism. Uh, exactly. Yes. Um, be before we, we start talking about, about Simon and white saviorism and the representation of race and ethnicity in materials, I'd like to talk about the context of Spain. Um, during my, my doctoral research, I, I collected some data. I did an ethnographic study in, in Spain, in Barcelona, in a school that was mm -hmm. considered diverse, and it was in the periphery of the city. And mm -hmm. it had a predominantly first and second generation um, immigrants. Um, and, and ethnography work would mean that I would be there for for a long period of time and just, you know, being a passive observant and sometimes an active observant and talking to the students and to, to, the, to the teachers as well. 
and some of the things that I, some of the practices that I observed um, that were done for the purpose of inclusivity was a school organizing um, cultural events or um, cuisine week or, you know, those big C culture representation of let's everyone bring a dish from their own cultures. This is what we call the big C culture because it's all about, you know, art and food and festivals and and all those, you know, big um, visible cultural representation and artifacts. Yeah. I found that these are easy to represent because they are mainly knowledge-based. Mm -hmm. You could easily Google what Eid is, what Christmas is, and although the practices change from one individual to another or from one family to another, but then it's the smaller C's that are very hard to represent. And these are the ones that we want in materials right in, in, in materials that we write. And the smaller C's are more behavioral, attitudinal, individual and fluid and dynamic and much more complex. And this is where Simon is not necessarily white from um, the global north, but Simon could also be black. And then this association between name, race, culture, religion is kind of broken down. Mm -hmm. And that's where the small C of culture the sits. That's where it's very difficult for materials writers to humanize the characters and to write stories about Amina, but not Amina as an ambassador of Algeria representing the whole country because that's how they eat and that that's how they dress and that's how they practice. Amina equals Algeria. <laughs> yeah. So the, the the identity equals nationality equals culture equals religion. That's called essentialism. When you take something and you reduce it and, and simplify it to its essence, then Amina becomes the Muslim girl. And now this very beautiful person, complex, who has so many life histories to share and stories to share, is then reduced to one single identity and feels trap trapped in it. Mm -hmm. When we write, it's fixed in a cage and that story gets trapped and it becomes unchangeable. And when we are materials writers and when we seek change, social change and political change and we want to educate learners who will be change makers and that's the whole purpose of social justice education then we don't want to have fixed identities in a piece of paper in a book that they will use for the next five years and that the teacher will use for the next five years and then you know simon becomes this fixed identity and each time you meet a simon you think about the one you read about in your course book so how can we break this down as materials writers is by humanizing Simon and making sure that Simon has a story and it is his own story and nobody's else. And he happens to be Algerian or a British or he happens to be Spanish. But then it, he's more than that. He's all these other contributions that he brings to life. But then Simon can be also weaponized and used as a character that reprodu reproduces systemic oppression. 
and that's where my workshop comes in. That's where our conversation um, happened because I used the, I named, so, okay, let me organize my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so. We, we, we actually bumped into each other in the, in the exhibition hall, well, on the edge of the exhibition hall at Aya Temple. Um, and, you know, as you do at an EOT conference, we, we talked about each other's height um, and then... <laughs> Mainly how short I was compared to you. Yeah, and, and then we obviously jumped into this idea of, um, well, assessing materials um, to, to make sure they were representative and so on. And we got on to Simon, who was the, you know, the, the archetypal, when you open a book and it says, oh, this is Simon who went to Burkina Faso for three months and built huts and now he's back home running his father's law firm. Um, but those three months are the thing that he will always talk about for the rest of his life when he went and saved the world by helping build three huts. Yes. Um, a little bit of background story. So I ran this workshop where the idea was to ask the, the, the participants who are mainly materials writers and editors to look at this uh, workshop wor worksheet that was a, a replica of an existing worksheet of a published course book from one of the big fours. And it is a recent one, it is a 2019 course book. And the, the worksheet was about somebody who, whose real name was not Simon, but you know, I used <laughs> The term, it's, my, it's the researcher in me who has these ethical issues of like, I don't want people to identify um, the course book. And, and then and my aim is not really to call out, but rather to call in. And my mm -hmm. aim is to be like, okay, let's look at this and how can we make it better? So my question for the audience was, who is included in this worksheet? And briefly, the story was about Simon who went to Nigeria and opened the school and he was telling about how he spent his day in this village in Nigeria. And he talks about um, starting to work uh, early in the morning because it gets hot in the afternoon. And sometimes in the afternoon he goes to learn the local language and he became friends with the local language teacher. And then sometimes he also teaches English for the children. And there are pictures of these beautiful, black, smiley children uh, who are probably from the region. And Simon, who is actively building the, the school. So the question was, who is included? Who do you think is, Peter? Um, Harry. <laughs> um, it's, it's all good. A tall man with not very much hair on his head. I can be Peter. It's fine. You know, I've been compared to much worse things in my life. Um, I'll, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Um, included in that, to me, seems mostly like Simon is included and how great Simon is and all the great things that Simon's doing. You know, he's trying hard to learn the language. He's working hard because it's tough in the afternoon when, you know, maybe he has to get up and doesn't have an air-conditioned office to go to. Poor Simon, who's out there saving the world. You know, and sometimes he even helps those lovely little children. What a saint Simon is. <laughs> it is. 
she is saint. So, but if we look at it from a social justice perspective, where the aim is to educate our learners to become um, cha um, change makers, then the idea here is to inspire the students who are using this course book. Maybe they're from Italy. Mm -hmm. they, they don't know what they want to do this summer. And then they have this Simon as role model. Then they could go somewhere, probably in a country that is considered poorer. And then they could save somebody and do something good about it. And I did say that I know a lot of Simons in the re in my real life, and I've met a lot of Simons in real life, and and they are sweet guys. Um, I've met a younger version of Simon at university, and we were doing all these social impact projects, trying to achieve the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. One of them would be the environmental one, the other one SDG four about education, SDG five about gender equality. And I met a lot of Simons who would go to Kenya, to Uganda, and they would create this beautiful projects, obviously, that are, and partner with um, local charities and churches and, and, and etc. And then the project would be sustainable because after Simon leaves, the project is supposed to be business, uh, a business that sustains itself throughout time. So the, the, the whole idea is, is possible. Mm -hmm. Then all of the Simons that were with me at university and in, that were involved in this project now work with big corporations and they have big salaries and they travel the world and they get to tell the stories about when they went to Kenya and, and dealt a will, uh, a well, you know what I mean. So they felt empowered. They had those stories. They had their parents telling them that you could do that. Yeah. And there were all these posters in schools uh, at university in the bathroom you go and you say you know save these little boys and and girls uh, who live far far away and and you and you feel empowered doing that but what about these children who are why aren't they the center of the story why don't we hear their voice Maybe which would be like which would be a great thing to see you know the, the difference that uh, for example, someone um, I, I work with uh, has been um, speaks to works with a school in in Tanzania, um, and they got a tap put in at their school. Now you know, oh wow, a tap. Some people will listen in here, but it's cut down on abs the absence of of the, um, teenage female teenage students because they have somewhere to help themselves be clean during menstruation, and you know the impact of a tap now maybe simon put that tap into the school but i don't want to know about what simon did to put the tap in i want to know about how the tap has affected those people at the school and and the impact that simon has had but how that's gone on to to help those students you know to reduce female absenteeism at school like to the huge difference that the simon has made and actually see that rather than just look at it from our perspective oh wow look how great simon is but actually hear that kind of opinion from a critical perspective if we take this this perspective you know that we want the story and the voice of the actual actors that are concerned um, with this issue to be centered 
my other question as a, as a materials writer, as an educator, and who is, you know, educating for social change and justice, is how can I invite the students or the people who are reading about this story deconstruct why in the first place do we need Simon to come and build a school in a country and what's the history behind it? What happened at the grand scale of things from a historical perspective? What happened that led for the charity model to exist? Mm -hmm. Why is it top-down Global North versus Global South charity model and not the other way around? And what happened and how, who are the stories that are being told? So Simon had an impact, but the ancestors of Simon, what did they do? Well, yeah, they had an even bigger impact. So Just perhaps not a positive one. Definitely not. But then to end up going and fixing, you know, with a, with a plaster, those yeah. more systemic issues of inequality, that are rooted in colonialism and imperialism. This is where the social justice story starts. Let's go back even further to understand where this comes from. And that could happen even in a mathematics classroom, not only in an English language teaching context. And certainly in a history classroom as well. I mean, is it not time that we uh, adapted our learning to not be the same five different subjects that we study in history. I think that there's plenty of history out there. And I think learning from the mistakes that we've made in the past, certainly, you know, accepting that. I know that here in Spain, whenever it's uh, the Dia de España, the 12th of October, the day that the Italian fella landed in the Caribbean, um, everyone here, if I ever say that, they, they get very kind of uppity, you know, well, no, we, we paid to go there and discover America. And it's like, well, yeah, discover is a, an interesting word. Um, you know, I discovered oxygen. Well, yeah, it's been there quite a long time. Um, you just discovered the use of it or anyway, didn't discover. And then, you know, I'll mention colonialism as such. And the immediate reaction, rather than being, do you know what? probably didn't deal with it in the best way our ancestors let's look at that and how we could change it they say well british were worse and it's like again i wasn't personally involved in any of the colonialism that happened that was a little bit before my time but i'm equally against the way that has happened i'm equally into looking at looking at that and learning from that um i remember a few years back in in Bristol, Bristol, when they pulled down the the Colson statue, who was a slave trader, and looking at that and seeing, you know, this social reaction to it, and why isn't that taught in school? Look, this guy who built a lot of the city, he actually made his money through slave trading. So great, he built the city, but look at how he did it. Is that really okay? Should he be venerated or? Maybe we should remove this kind of person from our history books. Now, we've done it with, you know, Jimmy Savile, for example. Nobody talks about Jimmy Savile anymore because of the atrocities that he committed. Yet there are still certain people that are included. And we need to look back at history and look at these people and learn that maybe we need to stretch out from only teaching about the second world war and how terrible hitler was maybe we can look at other areas of the world as well that's just a personal opinion anyway i 
I agree with your personal opinion that the teacher is listening to us today might feel overwhelmed and, and not being, you know, I'm not specialized, my field is not history. Mm -hmm. and I don't have time to go back and dismantle all these systemic and historical issues in order to teach a grammar activity. So the question again goes to how can a teacher who um, is writing the material or materials or who's teaching materials or has been provided with a course book with contents that are not necessarily um, expert in, how can they bring social justice to their classrooms? I have a couple of suggestions. Yes, I love suggestions. <laughs> suggestions are brilliant. So my, my researcher's hat was a problem finding hat. Um, mindset, but then when I took John Hughes' course about how to write materials and how to ca actually solve these issues that I raised during my research, then I was like, okay, teachers love how-tos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a guy as well, John Hughes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, jo John Hughes' course this summer will be in, in Oxford. Just shout out to him, definitely for those who want to tra transition to materials writing. Um, do have go have a look at the Oxford University um, summer courses and you, you'll find it. So anyway, how can a teacher who doesn't really have time to go find a history, history facts about who were slave traders and who were not? Let's look at the books you have in the library. Let's first start well the names. How many males? Ask for the inventory of the list of books that the students have access to and that your school is investing in. If you, even if you don't know the names, there are a list of recommendations on, online of black female writers, of black men historians, female ethnographers, socio sociologists, etc., etc. You don't need to read these books because you definitely don't have time. But just go down to the library and ask for an inventory and see how many men are there, how, man, how many white men are there, etc., etc. Then, your school has imposed on you a course book, and that's the only thing that you, you're able to work with. And there is this unit about tourism and what to visit in Melbourne or what to visit in Barcelona. And there is this statue. statue? Yeah. Yes, and then there is this statue that you have factual information about. Just Google that. Even if you teach it, the aim of social justice education is for your learners to be critical, is to think about what's this st statue about, who is that, and have the strategies to go on Google, who's this person, most of the time a man, most of the time a white man. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. They make history and then they get transformed into these statues. They get a statue <laughs> or a street named after them or something like that. They do. And then my role as a teacher is to ask the student to do the research if I don't have the time to do the research <laughs> for them. <laughs> so these are two examples. Check in what is in the reference list in the library and then just scrolling through or looking at the book, um, the course book that you have, and just seeing how many names are there that are white men, and then go from there. The other groups you could represent and think about including and reflecting upon are socioeconomic groups. 
are all the kids in the books have laptops and phones and access to internet? It could be gender groups. Are all the females only always in a caring role? Are all the girls gentle and nice and flowery? Oh, yes. Lovely. <laughs> Lovely. Or that they may have like, there, there may be a page, but probably not now as much as when I started teaching. There was always that page on Bend It Like Beckham, like based on that film. And it's like, it felt like a whole bunch of tokenism thrown into like this one page. Like, bam, there we go. We can talk about, you know, girls playing football. We can talk about other ethnicities. We've got it all there. But still, the main focus would probably end up being Kira Knightley anyway, because she was also in the film. So that's who the big photo it was. And it's just, you know, it's infuriating. And and it, it kind of brings me on to, to something else, if, if you don't mind. Oh. So apparently Harry's dog wants to go for a walk. You can, you can hear my dog in the background, obviously. She's just scratching and smiling at me. Uh, and Stupid White Men, there you go. I think that was the Michael Moore book, something that Michelle also mentioned. Um, I want to talk about um, anti-racism, if that's possible. Um, it's not really enough to just not be a racist, is it? Let, let's, let's be honest, that's not really okay. I'm a, you know, I'm a middle class white man with a beard and I'm not a racist. So that's okay, right? Yeah, it's okay. As long as you can, are willing to become an anti-racist. And I emphasize the word become because it is an active work that you do every day. And that being actively anti-racist is engaging in those, let's check the library because there is always this background thought of like there might be something that is problematic with this book let me just double check i worked as an invigilator at university um, earlier this summer and two students were sitting too closely together one was brown one was white and i am a brown woman for the audience who don't know me then my question was who do I approach first? And my thought went, who, I need to double check if they have the right seat because they were literally glued to each other. <laughs> and then I thought, if I start by approaching the black brown boy, experiences of being profiled as a cheater, as a thief, as somebody who has done something wrong have been experienced by him because they have been experienced by myself and my grandmother and my friends and th these are things that I've noticed and experienced so do I want to go and approach him first because he's the closest to the role but then would I disturb his well-being and make him doubt himself is like is does she think that i'm a cheater mm -hmm. and then that would be you know a very microaggression from my part towards him but the thought was in my head and that's being actively anti-racist but then you could say but you didn't mean to go check the black or the white boy you just wanted to check if they have the wrong seat number but then let me first go with the white boy because he's less likely to have experienced 
aggression and microaggressions the un there is nothing micro about them they're as harmful as the as the, as the, uh, the slur and the, and the and the beating they're often constant as well like microaggressions happen on a far more regular basis than a beating than you know a verbal slur the, these microaggressions happen like throughout the day every day forever like it's you know so to fight against that is really it's very important um, so that was a thought between me and myself i was being actively anti-racist and being actively careful of my behavior and how my behavior will affect an ethnic minority or a racial minority that was in a predominantly white room and then i checked myself and i said okay i'm not gonna check and if there is a behavior that is not ethical um during the exam i would flag it but other than that i'm not gonna do anything about it as a teacher how can you be actively anti-racist one of the teachers i observed in spain was complaining about how a muslim student doesn't attend friday classes because supposedly he has to go to the mosque every friday supposedly and he was actually going to the mosque. But what if he'd been on a Fridays for the Future uh, strike, and he'd been a you know a white middle class boy who was was out doing it? Then you know then the it wouldn't be supposedly he's on strike. It would be ah, oh, he's uh, he's away on strike. You know that's fine. But uh, you know this comes from supposedly he's at the mosque. Yeah. Um, yeah. Peter has said he has to shoot off he's going to catch up with the last few minutes when he comes back he also said ciao so ciao ciao peter, ciao, peter. we shall speak soon um yeah the, it's that that word of supposedly you know that supposedly is it the most why would he lie i'll i'll be honest i didn't spend that many friday afternoons at school from in my lower sixth year because i had triple chemistry now, I wasn't supposedly anywhere. I just wasn't there because I didn't want to go to it. You know, I would much rather go off and do my own thing, which kids, anyone who's listening, don't be like Harry, go to school. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, and it was never, it was it was rarely flagged. My chemistry teacher, who I, you know, I went to the other two lessons that I had with them in the week. It was just, you know, Friday afternoon, triple chemistry. Oh, it was a lot. Um, and he eventually came and spoke to me and was like, I can see you're missing a lot of classes. Could you not miss as many? You know, please come along to class. I, I, obviously, you've been in school throughout the rest of the day. There's an, you went to double drama. Why aren't you a triple chemistry? Um, but it was flagged in that way. But it was done in such a nice, easy kind of chill way that it was like, hey, Harry, you know, excuse my language but harry don't be a dick and i was basically like all right i won't be and yeah, I, I went to my chemistry i got through as level chemistry by the way everybody i managed to get a c um there was a lot of hard work done in the final term i must admit but yeah there was no aggression towards me whatsoever had it been you know as you mentioned this kind of this other way around would it have been the same would it have been the same? That's the question. Then practically, what does it mean to be anti-racist for a materials writer? It only it also means when you are trying to include all these names, you know, Aisha and Layla and Mohammed and Ahmed and along with Peter and Harry and, and Michelle and Simon and 
and and um, and and so on. You want to include all these names, but at the same time, Aisha has waited centuries for her name to be included. Don't make Aisha a cheater, yeah. or a lazy person, just because you would have made Harry a cheater or lazy person doesn't mean that now everyone is equal. Therefore, you're going to give them the same characteristics and the same. It doesn't ring the same when I Aisha is the one cheating. And it doesn't ring the same when Harry is the one cheating. This is well, yeah, because Harry's. you would, and, and there would be those people, and it would reinforce that bias. And, you know, you would have people who aren't educated looking and going, oh, typical. Oh, yeah. Typical. Obviously, Aisha's, the, I mean, you just, and it reinforces those horrible biases that exist. That I don't know how, how they still exist in 2022. I, I live in this echo chamber, this bubble of wonderful ELT um, individuals and people that I know are very open-minded. So, you know, I find it incredibly hard to believe that that still exists, but it does. And it very much exists outside my algorithms that have led me down this nice guardian reader path to, you know, to enlightenment. Um, but there are these awful people and and if we aren't anti-racist, it will just reinforce that. And let's say that, you know, Simon's dad isn't anti-racist, you know, and maybe he's not even, he's not an aggressive racist, you know, he doesn't really mean it when he makes those jokes. You know, he doesn't really mean it. it's just for a laugh, you know, but if he's doing that around Simon from the age of four or five, you know, when Simon sees in the book that Aisha's a thief, he's just going to have that instant reaction to, you know, Simon Senior making those jokes and be like, oh, yeah, and it reinforces that bias. Yeah, I don't think that those people who have those biases are awful people. I don't think they are racist people. I don't think they are bad or feel should restrained from writing anything or, or publishing anything about ethnic minorities or racial minorities in the course books that they are writing because they don't know how and they're afraid of you know being awful when they don't mean to i i think that if we come a place if we come from a place of empathy and we don't feel frightened by the word racist within the expression anti-racist because the focus should not be in the racist, but rather in the anti that is active and every day. And it's, it's all the reading and the talking and the conversations that you go, you go through. Um, I, and I think that's where we can see a change. And I think in terms of materials as well and teaching in general, you know, anti-racism is it's a prevention as opposed to a cure. You know, we're going in there and we're stopping these biases before they start we're going in there we're making sure that students don't have this kind of early impact you know if you look at kids and young learners and these kind of areas if we go in there with this anti-racist approach then it's a prevention we're not going in there to try and fix what had been ruined in the past let me let me challenge you here how would you think about anti-racism in sustainable green discourse Oh, um, well, I, well, it, it looks at, well, you've got to look at climate justice, basically, and you have to look at who is being affected. Well, more and more people are being affected by um, climate change. 
Um, but you would have to look at the early areas of climate change and what areas are being affected. But then also, the for just for example, the emissions caused by the people who are affected. And you look at that and it is disproportionate, very, very disproportionately, not white people, not the global north, as, as we refer to it, um, who are being affected by climate change. Let's look at Pakistan and India, for example, who who saw the hottest March, April and May uh, in their histories, and probably not for the first time, with devastating heat waves across the entire continent. You know, um, so it is very disproportionately climate change is affecting now more a lot more the people who are also affected by these you know these racist uh, ideals yeah they come from a power imbalance and then when i'm teaching a, a unit or a session about climate change or small tips or, or tricks on how to clean your neighborhood I need to make my students reflect and think as an active racist environmentalist about why are some neighborhoods cleaner than others? And where does this economic inequity and equality come from? Why are there investments and parks in the posh neighborhoods where in the predominantly immigrant neighborhoods we don't have parks we don't have enough greenery, we don't have enough trees. So why is that? And then each time there is a conversation about climate change, I would sit down and see how much time can I dedicate to racial inequity and racial injustice that would make my students maybe do the research themselves. Yeah, well, the thing is as well with that, you can very easily do it in the city that you live in, like even in the town, I, I live in a tiny village. There are about seven, 8,000 people live here. You know, most of them already know who I am anyway, because I walk around with a litter picker and a bag. Um, and but, a and, and a hat obviously is very hot. I'm not wearing my hat at the moment. Um, you know, I don't want to get a sunburnt head, um, but I will walk to school with my daughter and from, from our house t for about the next 250 meters, we are in the area of town that there are, are more um, gitanos, basically, people who are from... Um, travelers. Travelers, exactly, or, or from descent. There are quite a lot of uh, gitanos here in the south of Spain. And you can see that the street cleaner, the person, you know, the, the government-sponsored paid street cleaner, doesn't reach this far in the street. And we will pick up from here the next 200 meters um, we will pick up, you know, about 90 to 100 pieces of litter. And then the following kilometre, we'll pick up 45 pieces of litter. You know, and you can, you can, you can literally see it as you walk through. Um, if you go to a place called uh, La Tres Mil, which is a place where lots of Hidano people were moved from where they were living and they were basically built, they built a few 3,000 buildings, 3,000 homes, and they said everybody in there and you go along the way there and it's there's the streets are full of rubbish there's been no government investment whatsoever because they said well what's the point what's the point they'll just destroy i'll tell you what if they had a huge renovation if there was a massive facelift on the town there would be an awful lot more pride in the area you know they 
would still be people out dancing on the streets because culturally that's what they do. But if it had all been cleaned up and made to be nice for them and that money hadn't just been set aside for, you know, Los Bermejales, which is a posh area in town where they've got nice parks and it's always clean and lovely bars, there would be a massive difference. I, I have to, to stress that anti-racist work is supposed to be beautiful work, empowering work, positive work. And when, when it is not done at the institutional level, these grassroots organizations and people like yourself picking up the litter on the street with your daughter are already doing the work. So I, I, I don't like to, to end on a, on a gloomy note, you know, by denouncing, of course, because we have to, denouncing the systemic racism and the systemic inequality. Uh, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that there is a lot of work that is being done and a lot of people are putting their heart in it. And if we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, the end goal and the purpose and the way it has transformed the, the, the communities is by making community gardens mm -hmm. and starting to you know, grow their own vegetables because of the segregational laws that have been established for years um, where they don't have access to organic food um, etc etc so what comes as a reaction as a resistance to these systemic forces that are very very hard to challenge is the grassroots work um, yeah and, and a lot of teachers are already doing that in their classrooms well absolutely I mean, I mean I often talk about this when it comes to history and when we do look at inevitably the second world war because let's be honest it's pretty important you know it's one of those moments in time you have to look at is, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of up there with a lot of things that have happened in in life in general. Kind of shaped our lives and our yeah, lives. had it had it definitely had you know there was a huge before and after kind of thing. But this idea of dig for victory, I remember when I studied it at school, and dig for victory for me was one lesson of you know British people we dug our own carrots because there wasn't enough food to go around, and you know this idea. I don't know why we can't do that again. Like, why can't we have another dig for victory? But this time it's victory you know, against other things. But yeah, work on these community gardens together and, and get out there and, you know, have a... That, that community spirit is massively built when you do those things. There's nothing like going down the allotment. When I was younger, I used to go down to the allotment with my dad. I'd help out. There's a There was an old Italian fella who was next to us who couldn't quite bend down far enough and had planted 150 tomato plants. Yeah, he loved his tomatoes. You know, not wanting to live up to a stereotype or anything. Luigi, the Italian man, had 150 tomato plants. But I'd go and I'd help him. And there was this wonderful community. And from that, I had more tomatoes that summer than I could shake a stick at. I'll tell you what, I make a mean tomato sauce now because I had hundreds of tomatoes. Um, so it was absolutely... You know, that idea of a community garden, that idea of having something you can all focus on, a park, a garden, something like that. It's so great to, to kind of bring everybody together. It does. And it offers access to not, also, not only a basic need, which is food, but it also um, offers access to safety environments um, where, you know, the generations mix up and the ethnicities mix up and 
and and I'm looking I'm I'm talking about gardens and parks where I am kind of you know I go for my walks sometimes sometimes I go for a walk in a park and and say hello to the people and don't really mingle <laughs> I don't really go to random people we can we can chat about their cute dogs or oh. or, or the weather but we don't really you know uh, mingle and and meet up and and we end up creating our own social networks um very organically based on affinity mm -hmm. based on the people we share you know similarities with sometimes it's cultural and that's why you have these clusters of you know ethnic groups that come together yeah. uh, well here in the village a lot of you know my friends now i have other people who are from the uk an american friend that's not to say i don't hang out with spanish people as well obviously i do um, but for, for me, like I found when I was away recently, it, you, you mentioned dogs. Now, the first phrase that I like taught myself was uh, how to like ask an Italian person if I could touch their dog. Now, automatically, if I see somebody with a dog, to me, they're just a good person. I know that shouldn't be the case, but that's like my instant profiling. I see someone, they've got a dog and I'm like, Firstly, I want to touch your dog. Secondly, you must be awesome because you've got a dog that I can touch. What about people with children? Um, I don't ask to touch their children normally. That's that's very inappropriate. Um, I mean, are they good people for you? Like, um, profile? Well, you can often see that. Now, again, that's something really funny you mentioned after this summer camp. So I'd been at this summer camp for a week looking after 25 teenagers. Um, 24-7, you know, with the, we were there at 2 a.m. when Elisa got up and set the fire alarm off because she just wanted to because that's how cool she like was. <laughs> just felt like it. it was totally cool, totally OK to be working up at 2 in the morning. Thanks, Elisa, if you're listening. Um, but, you know, we'd been with them for 24 hours a day and there were 25 of them for a full week. You know, it's not it's not rocket science, but at the end of the, the session, when we were saying goodbye, you know, the parents arrived to collect them. And you can really see the difference. Now, I can't automatically say someone with a child is a good person or not. You could see the difference because the students who were really nice, now of the 25, I'd say that 19 of them were really nice. Yeah. Six of them were more difficult. Um, the six parents that came to pick up the children who weren't particularly great came, got their kids left. Oh, no. The really nice ones all came over. They said, thank you, be it in Italian or... or very good English or broken English and you can see immediately within a child that the parents influence and it is that level of like education and manners you know there's something that's vital I do trust the teacher's analysis of, of parents versus children's um, attitudes and, and behaviors I do trust that teachers yeah. are able to read through the lines and yeah. There are exceptions, don't get me wrong, Giovanni was not particularly nice at the summer camp, but his parents were super lovely, and you just think, you know, there's always going to be an exception, they came over and they were like, how was his behaviour, and it was like, could have been better, you know, and you could see that they were upset by it, um, but you know, it's yeah. it's those sort of things, so yeah, automatically, no, if someone has a child, I don't, I, I like to see the child's behaviour first before I make that decision. But when it comes to a dog, if they say I can touch the dog, then the dog's been well trained. Yeah, that's my that's my kind of barometer. <laughs> Not barometer for good, by the way. There are good people who like cats, like Let's Peter, for example. Or... Yeah. Yeah, but I instantly feel that connection with somebody who has a dog. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. I am just going to, I'm going to just interrupt you for one moment. If, 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 you'd, if you can stay around for the last 15 minutes, that would be great. Um, if, if you have to run off, that's fine. But I am going to make an attempt to see if I can have a better effort at, uh, at reading, which I didn't do very well last time. I haven't quite managed to figure out the technology. So stick around, everybody. This could be quite amusing. Um, my reading was very bad last time. So I'll be, I'm just going to take a sip of water to see if I can get all the way through this. Um, and yeah, maybe start as a reading an auto cue in future is going to work. So everybody. Mm. With a Slack group, got it first time this time, are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people like you to help them achieve even more. At With a Slack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, uh, offered a clear path to career progression and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits that industry has to offer. Witherslack currently have some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for. Check out, here we go, www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. There, I've done the first one. Okay, I've made it. Now the second one, let's see if I can get the whole way through. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service provides secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum at Key Stage 3 and 4 and it connects with resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD, powered by Oxford Smart Caboodle. What makes Oxford Smart different? Uh, for the first time, curriculum is seamlessly connected with the resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. This curriculum coherence means all components work smoothly together gathering data to give you the insights you need to plan, teach, assess, and monitor the progress of all your students effectively, as well as providing a personalized and adaptive learning pathway for all of your students. Oxford Smart frees up your time to inspire a love of learning in your students and spark awe and wonder in your classroom. Visit OUP at global.oup.com to find out more. Ooh, I did it. There you go. Um, I made it. <laughs> Thank you so much. That, that felt like more of an ordeal than perhaps it should have been um, for somebody who's, uh, you know, supposed to be okay at reading. But anyway, it's the first time it's happened in a long time. Um, I remember my first, so as I mentioned, this is the 48th show that I've done. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge achievement. Well, thank you so much. It's it's uh, it's been great, and I actually have a future guest and a previous guest here as well, um, Jane Ritter, who is now um, the presenter who was on earlier today. We are the Wednesday Wombats. We come from far away. Let's not start singing now. Um, but yeah, I've not had technical issues like this for quite a long time. So when it didn't work today, um, it, I, I was it, not in panic mode exactly, but um, perhaps not in cool, calm and collected mode. So we're back now anyway. Thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for listening to me fumbling through my, my reading there. Um, so you've, you've mentioned that we, we talked about earlier that the different areas that you work in. Um, intercultural learning was what you started on. We were going to start by talking about that, but I kind of took a different fork in the road. So why don't we kind of swing back and talk about what is intercultural learning anyway? 
jump in from one topic to another. Michelle has suggested a book. Um, I've been actually Googling a lot lately. It's called How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Mm -hmm. He's been promoting it uh, lately, and he has also a children's book, children's story that is on audiobook narrated by, by his daughter, and it's called Good Night Racism. Um, so these two books are, um, you know, quite a good reference, I think, to start with. Um, but going back to intercultural communication, <laughs> what is the intercultural? Um, if uh, we look into it from a traditional definition kind of way or a simplistic definition, uh, we take the word intercultural and we break it down into culture and inter. And that would be how can people from different cultures communicate with each other in an appropriate and an effective way? How can they understand each other, et cetera, et cetera. However, like most of these concepts that are, you know, they've been, they've been around for a long, long time. Um, some say that it was, it's the politically correct way of to say, how can you be accepting of other people? And most of the time, the power dynamic is there. And how can you be accepting of other people who are not white would be the, the less politically correct to kind of, you know, position the field. But that's how academia works. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting field that is dominated by um, very, very um, old traditions. So simply put, intercultural communication is about um, how those skills that we develop as uh, individuals, and mainly language learners, really, to understand each other and not, you know, stop at a mispronounced word or a different accent and how can we move the talk or the conversation forward by using all those skills that are around the language in addition to the language and those skills would be the knowledge about different cultures not necessarily in a fixed way and that's how Muslims do things and that's how Arabs do things but rather it's like there is a cultural dimension out there. There are some cultural information that could be factual, but there is the possibility of individuality and change. So knowledge, attitude, how can I showcase respect on somebody coming from a different age group or a different cultural group or ethnic group or gender group is communicating with me? And how can I adapt my language to be understood by, by, by this different group? So just like we did earlier today, we uh, assumed that there might be people who don't know what's ELT and what's EAT mean and what's parsnip mean. And just we adapted and, and, and kind of broke it down in terms of you know communicating the idea. And that's been intercultural as well. That's um, being from a cultural environment that is academic versus being from a, a cultural environment that is not familiar with the academic domain. Um, so that's attitude, number two. And number three is skills, which we know as language educators traditionally as the skill of speaking and writing and reading, and, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's simply put, intercultural communication and intercultural competence is, is about the knowledge the skills and the attitude 
that we can develop in order to communicate with people who don't share the same cultural backgrounds as ours. And the idea of culture, as we broke it down now, does not necessarily mean um, festivals and food. And food, yeah. Which, again, it is nice to look at, you know, and it is fun to see these different things. And, and one thing I was incredibly lucky with at school was the fact it was a, a hugely multicultural school. So we would learn about Diwali and Eid and, and Chinese New Year and Passover. We learned about all these different things, which was great. But we did also learn about other aspects of, you know, intercultural life. And this was 30 years ago, you know, when I was I was at school. Um, I, I was also at school after 30 years ago. I was eight at school 30 years ago. I didn't finish 30 years ago, by the way, just to clarify. I may look 48, but uh, I am only 38. Uh, it's the first time I've said that in a while. Cultural communication is important, and I guess it was the case for your own learning experience, is because it helps us. It's one of the ways that we can support our learners become change makers by living, learning to live together in empathy and in solidarity, etc. So that's the whole, you know, positive outlook that intercultural communication has in it. And one of the key concepts that comes under the umbrella of intercultural communication is critical cultural awareness. And this is where the citizenship comes in. And the, this is where the idea of being nicer to the environment would also mean being nicer to people who live mm -hmm. in that environment. And being critical means being able to dismantle these power dynamics and being aware of them as a language learner, as a language speaker. And you, you know, like just an anecdote. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. She's actually my best friend. She doesn't like when I call her friend. She's like, no, I'm not just a friend. <laughs> she was telling me about this Pakistani w lady she met. And she was telling her, um, I am Pakistani, but I don't look Pakistani. And then she started speaking in English with an accent that does not sound for her Pakistani. And she was proud for not sounding Pakistani. And that was a very um, interesting experience for her as she was narrating it. Can you hear yeah, me all right? Absolutely perfectly, yeah. As she was narrating it, because this uh, young woman was finding pride for assimilating to a non-brown, you know, Eurocentric-sounding yeah. accent. Yeah. And that, m that comes from a deeper, deeper roots, as we talked about it earlier, you know, the whole historical colonial... Yeah, exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. So as an intercultural communicator, if she was in my classroom, my role would be, as an educator, would be to make her feel proud of her heritage and not... And comfortable. And comfortable in speaking in a way that she doesn't have to hide it. Now, I know that this, this even seeps into, you know, all sorts of culture. But, you know, I was I was teaching with a, a, a young lady from Newcastle. And, you know, when she speaks, she works hard not to have a thick Geordie accent. OK, sometimes it's for intelligibility. And way a man rate is sometimes it's a bit tough. But, you know... I know it's not the same thing, but, you know, hiding that kind of cultural identity and, and hiding behind it is, is something that actually really aggravates my wife, who is Spanish. Mm. 
she's from Spain. She was born in Spain. Um, she moved to Australia when she was four. But she doesn't look Spanish. And when she speaks in English, she sounds, I should say Australian, but she sounds British. She has a very malleable accent. And it kind of, it really annoys her that people just assume that she is not Spanish. And she would sometimes like to, you know, speak English with a Spanish accent. So people think, oh, okay, maybe you are from here. But it's immediately like, oh, you can't be from here. You know, this, that, that can't be possible. Silvina has a big announcement for us. Oh, I love that. I just saw, I've just seen that. Do you want, do you want to say it? No, no, I'll, I'll let you say it. Yeah, so Silvina is an important person in my life. Uh, we took together the course of John Hughes, uh, How to Write Materials, and she had also taken a course with my on materials writing, etc. And then she was the first person to encourage me to start, you know, creating free materials, and we did the Black History Month uh, series together. And that's how Which is brilliant, by the Thank way. You. Thank you so much. Um, that's how my presence in LinkedIn started to be visible. Um, and, and, and since then, you know, I, I found a position of myself. It's not about me. It's about Silvina. Anyway, <laughs> so Silvina is a very, very pr productive materials writer. She publishes a lot of lesson plans free of charge. Some of them um, with collaborations that are payable, but... She's preparing a lesson plan on stigmatization of accents. And guess what? Another fancy thing. Now, we've got one minute left. I'm going to... I don't know if I should spoil the surprise, but I'm going to. So, Silvina is actually going to be my 50th guest. Um, wow. So, in a couple of weeks, she's going to be on as my... On the, on the 20th, I believe, she's going to be my, my 50th guest, which is... I'm incredibly happy about. I've... I've been on at her, I think, since about episode two to come on. Um, and she's she, she's promised her to come on, and it's going to be on the 50th show. I, she's brilliant, Silvina is. You are also brilliant. Now, we've run out of time. We've got not very long left. Luckily, I don't have the outro music because it's not working. So there are 20 seconds still. I'm going to say thank you so much for coming on. The time has flown. Um, has I feel I've learned loads. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was it was lovely. My 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 goal here was to be you know as useful as articulate and clear as possible, and you helped me do that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for, for being all of those things. Um, thanks everybody for listening. I, I will be back next week, hopefully with some more audio. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, I'll be speaking to Adam Scott next week for the 49th show. Um, but yeah, please do feel free to listen back, send on to your friends, put it on any notice boards you want to. This is a message that needs to be brought out there. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming, Amina, and I'll, I'll hear you next week. <laughs>